This is World to Win, bringing you the latest news and analysis from a socialist perspective. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 38 of World to Win. Don't forget to subscribe to our channel and also click the bell button so that you're notified when we go live and also when we upload a new video. So today we're going to mark, even if slightly late, the 150th anniversary of one of the most famous events in working class history, the Paris Commune. Um, but before we go into it, I want to say hi to my co-host Toya. How are you doing, Toya? I'm doing great, Yara. It's good to see you. How you been? I'm good. You know, I I've been in a bit, a bit of a reading lull, so I was wondering, are you reading anything interesting? Yara, so last week, you know, we talked about Martin Luther King and Ida B. Wells, and Quinn inspired me to, you know, read more about Ida. She, <clears throat> excuse me, she was just so interesting. So I picked up a book about her. I just got to the chapter where she's talking about, um, you know, what really uh, shaped her consciousness in regards to the lynching that was going on in the U.S. Um, so for anyone who didn't see last week's episode, you should totally check it out. It's, it's really great. What about you? What are you reading? Nothing. That's my problem. So I'm going to use this platform and ask everyone who's watching to recommend good literature for me because I don't know what I'm doing in my life. I've been sitting around just watching Netflix constantly and it's, it's bad. It's bad. So please put in the comments anything that you've been reading recently that's really interesting and really inspired you. Um, because I've been reading a little bit about the Paris Commune for this episode and I'm really inspired to start reading something good. So, uh, that being said, I think we can start this episode. So this time, 150 years ago, was one of the greatest, most significant events in our movement. And it, it was one that's kind of overlooked in history a lot of the time. Like we all hear about a lot of, you know, like French revolutions, all of these periods. But the Paris Commune is not one of these things that jumped to your head immediately. And it really should because it was a magnificent event that proved so much for our movement. You know, on March the 18th, 1871, um, it was for the first time in history that workers seized control. And as Engels put it, they stormed heaven. And then the Paris Commune was born, uh, sending reverberations throughout the world. Uh, and it struck fear in the hearts of the ruling class, as we see all the time when there's even a slight threat. But this wasn't a slight threat. This was a big one. And it inspired solidarity of workers and revolutionaries across Europe and even beyond Europe as well. And with this reason, it vividly demonstrated the revolutionary potential of working class people and, you know, our creative capacities to organize society free from capitalist exploitation. And although it would only last for nine weeks before it was brutally crushed, and I think we'll talk about it a little bit uh, as well, it had a massive impact on the socialist movement as a whole, generally around the world. And it also forced Marx to further develop his theoretical understanding of the state, which is obviously one of the most important things, especially now in the context of, you know, a lot of people talking about state power, about restriction of protest and uh, about, uh, you know, the, the power of the police. I think it's incredibly important that we talk about this event today. And it's also been a source of inspiration for revolutionaries ever since and is packed full of lessons for today as well as you know some really interesting details about kind of the history of our movement 
so uh, we, we're going to discuss this today and we have two really uh, amazing people to talk about this today. So first we have Harper from the Socialist Party in Ireland. So hi Harper, how are you doing? Hey Yara, how are you? I'm good. So I, I, I want to ask you too, what, what have you been doing recently? Well, what's been happening in Ireland? And also what have you been reading? Because I'm dying to know. Yeah, in Ireland, um, uh, people, working class women in particular here, took huge inspiration from the, the protests that happened in the UK following the murder of Sarah Everard. Um, so Socialist Party members and ROSA members here in Ireland uh, helped to organize a solidarity protest um, uh, uh, that got a huge amount of media attention, a huge amount of support, um, got a significant turnout in several uh, cities north and south. Um, which I think is just all a part of the, the worsening conditions for the working class genu generally, but with a particular impact on working class women who are doubly oppressed. So, um, and in terms of what I've been reading, I mean, I actually, I read the Civil War in France uh, in preparation for the discussion on the Paris Commune, um, and also A People's Guide to Capitalism, which is also quite good and would recommend. Great, I'm, I'm gonna write all of these down uh, when we're out of this. Um, but then we also have Paul, who's from uh, England, Wales and Scotland, from Socialist Alternative. So how are you doing, Paul? How's, how's it going in Manchester right now? Well, uh, Yara, it's been really busy, actually. Two weekends ago, we had a demonstration, a huge demonstration in Manchester, like the one that I was talking about. We had about 1,500 young women and men uh, demonstrating about uh, gender violence and also calling for an end to the uh, police uh, bill, which is going through Parliament at the moment. The other thing we've had is that yesterday we had a big cavalcade for the North Manchester bus drivers who've been on strike for 35 days solidly now. And as part of that, I'd just like to give a shout out to one of our Socialist Alternative members, uh, Adam Birch, who's a bus driver in uh, Minneapolis, and uh, he sent a solidarity message from his union branch, uh, ATU Local 1005, which we got to the bus drivers and which was uh, much appreciated. So thanks to him and other comrades in Minneapolis. That's so brilliant. I always love hearing about kind of the, you know, the, the, the international solidarity that we have and also kind of the, the power of being a part of an international movement, which I think really connects us to the Paris Commune, because everything that we've talked about, uh, about gender violence, about the power of the state, all of these struggles that are happening today are extremely relevant to the way that the 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 protesters in Paris have created this commune and kind of the lessons that we learn from it. So I want to start with kind of like setting the scene. So the decades before the commune were a period of massive transformation. I think everyone knows about kind of all the revolutions that were happening in France, the expansion also and development of capitalism globally, uh, revolution and counter-revolution, as well as the growth of the working class movement that was just kind of peeking its head that period and I think these are all key to understanding the events that played out in 1871 and also what made them so distinct in this movement uh, so Harper can you give us an outline of these important developments yeah definitely um I should start off by saying that 
I mean, I'm here giving, like, talking about the Paris Commune because I recently wrote an article on it. Um, but before writing that article, I, I can't overstate it. I knew so little about history in France generally, um, and certainly almost nothing about the Paris Commune other than conversations I had with other socialists, you know. Um, and certainly before I came, became a socialist, I knew really nothing. So if, if you're entering this discussion from that position, rest assured, that's the impact of a bourgeois education system. <laughs> but yeah, so I'm going to try to be um, condensed about this. Um, but really, if you look at the, the conditions that the working class was in in um, 1871, when the com commune emerged, you'd kind of have to go back um, really to the French Revolution to really understand the consciousness of the working class in Paris. So in 1789, I'm going to try to be brief, so bear with me, but in 1799, the French Revolution that overthrew the feudal order was like forged by what was called the Third Estate. And the Third Estate was composed of, yes, like property-owning bourgeoisie, um, but it was also composed of the peasantry, the radical middle class, and there wasn't a working class as such yet in the way that we understand it today, but basically the layers that would be the working class in the future, right? Um, and this was forged against the first and second estates uh, of France, which were the aristocracy and, and the clergy. Um, and what's different about the French Revolution as opposed to like other bourgeois revolutions of, the, of the, a similar time frame, for instance, the American Revolution, is that... Um, the lower orders, so you know, that radical middle class, those the sort of nascent working class, actually played a huge leadership role in the French Revolution. Um, and, and they actually came to be known as the, organized around the name, the Sans Culottes. Uh, I apologize now for my horrible French pronunciation for everything, but um, Sans Culottes, Culottes were like a kind of like fancy silk trousers that were worn by like the aristocracy and the sans culottes were originally called that in a kind of a disparaging way but they reclaimed that as kind of a, a, a acknowledgement of their specifically radical um, role in revolutionary efforts you know and from 1792 to 1794 actually the sans culottes in alliance with the sort of radical bourgeois Jacobins were in power um, until 1794, when the bourgeois elements of the uh, of that alliance um, uh, of the the first French Republic started to turn on the sans culottes, um, lit headed by Robespierre. But so then, if we fast forward to 1848, where there in Europe there were like revolutions across Europe in 50 countries, right? Revolutions linked with increased urbanization, with worsening material conditions. Um, with a desire for more democracy in those in that context, in February the French monarch um, Louis Philippe was overthrown, and the Second French Republic was established. And that was obviously the working French working class, the Parisian working class in particular, played a huge role in that. But in June, the bourgeoisie again started to take a conservative turn, and there was another uh, uprising of the French working class. Um, and that was actually like really bloodily repressed. Um, but you can see the kind of tensions between the French bourgeoisie and the French working class, specifically the Parisian working class, growing because even in the 1830s, there's a lot of workers' revolts famously depicted in Les Miserables. And uh, the, the, the bourgeoisie consistently sided with the monarchy because they were so unwilling to cede territory to the French working class. And so all of this was kind of fermenting um, at the time period, or fermenting, excuse me. Um, so by the time that Louis Napoleon III um, kind of imposed from that 
uh, the the an, uh, yet another monarchy, another empire. You know, these were the kind of things at play. This was the kind of context of the French working class, which I think is important when we get into more of the, the discussion on it. Yeah, Harper, that history is so important for us to really understand what we're building up to before we talk about this infamous event of the Paris Commune. But I want to go over to Paul. Um, Paul, I'm going to quote Lenin real quick because I think this quote kind of you know, uh, uh, sets the stage for for where we're at um, in regards to what we're talking about. Lenin said that war is the midwife of revolution. Um, and indeed, from 1870 to 1871, we had the Franco-Prussian War. So can you talk a little bit about, you know, the impact that this war had on the Parisian working class? Like you said, uh, Toya, there was an imperialist war between France and Prussia, Prussia being the driving force behind German unification. The very poorly organized French army rapidly collapsed and the Prussian armies advanced to the perimeter of Paris. So the Parisian working class was subjected to a four month siege with all the privations that you can imagine with people eating rats and so on. Now, the French emperor was defeated in battle at Sedan. He was captured and then released by the Prussians. He fled to England, so he was fine. The bourgeois government of France capitulated to the Prussians and then decamped to Versailles, from where they imposed a whole series of anti-working-class measures. One of them, for example, was about rents. Now, during the war, the, the rents for the working class in Paris were suspended. There was a moratorium, just like there is in many countries now during the pandemic. And then all of a sudden, because the war's technically over, the, the government says, uh, right, you've got to start paying your, your rents again. And the other thing was that the government sent troops to capture the cannons at Montmartre and Belleville. Now, these were cannons. They were a little bit antiquated. But there's quite a lot of them, and they could have been used to defend Paris either against the Prussians or against the reactionary French government. And that's why they wanted their cannons back, although the workers had bought them through public subscription over several years. So this was an enormous provocation to the Parisian working class. You can't have our cannons. And they fought off the French troops who tried to capture the, these cannons. Then at this point, elections were held throughout France. The emperor had gone, needed a new government, but there was an atmosphere of revolutionary ferment. And so these elections, which in other parts of France produced a parliamentary majority for reactionary monarchists and so on, in Paris, 37 out of 42 seats went to one kind of radical or republican group or another. Some of them were actually anarchists. Some of them were fairly tame social reformers. And a handful were Marxists as well. They supported Karl Marx and Engels in the First International. The really significant thing about it, of course, was that the workers were in control. Paris was a city of workers' power. I think it's so, it's so inspiring to hear about kind of the events that made the Paris Commune and I think now we got to kind of the period where the Paris Commune was established and kind of opened up this new period uh, where we see the working class 
kind of running their own affairs and not kind of, um, you know, being attached to the state as it was at the time. And that also kind of brought on this, uh, this massive creativity and also the, the kind of ingenuity of organization of society. You know, this was the first time that this happened and we saw it working in a very interesting way. So, Harper, can you tell us a little bit about what life was like and during that period and also kind of what were the main gains uh, that were won for the exploited and the oppressed as opposed to what happened before the commune that we've just heard about? Yeah, I mean, I think this is just like one of obviously so inspiring all the gains that were made in basically 72 days in Paris in 1871, 150 years ago, a time that I think many of us would consider, oh, we would just naturally assume, well, it was more backwards. There's less progress, you know, because of uh, of all that has happened in the interim period. But actually, working class Parisians made loads of progressive reforms in a really short period of time. So, for instance, as soon as the commune was formed, there was immediate, immediately there were new elections held, um, which was open. Elections were open to all men in Paris, right? So 200,000 people voted and one third of those people elected were actually members of the First International, the organization which Marx and Engels belonged to at the time. Um, in order to make sure that elected officials and state bureaucrats and state functionaries more generally, generally were um, of the same class, weren't given special privileges, immediately all elected officials and state functionaries were paid an average worker's wage and subject to immediate recall should anything be going amiss, you know? Something that I think is just, I mean, here in Ireland at least, like, while uh, student nurses have been, um, had to work for free for a big part of this pandemic, uh, and the TDs, the, the members of parliament have been getting raises in the meantime, you know, I think we can see how powerful something like that is. Um, foreigners living in, living in Paris immediately were given citizenship and allowed to vote. So they were part of that 200,000 that voted. Um, again, if we think about this today, it's, it's immediately obvious how revolutionary that is. I grew up in um, uh, very near the US-Mexico border in California and Democrats and Republicans alike would never be okay with this because it would actually, especially in the context of, of uh, increased, more socialists running for public office, you know, it would just be, actually pose a risk to their, uh, their power that they hold, you know? Um, and something else that is really uh, profound is that church and the church and state were immediately separated. Um, religion was made a private choice of individuals rather than something that was imposed by governing bodies. And there was like particular attention paid to the, the removal of church influence from schools. There was a hiring drive for secular teachers, which included a lot of women and women were immediately paid equal. Women teachers were immediately paid equal to their male counterparts, you know. Um, again, in Ireland here, we're still fighting for the separation of church and state, which has a massive influence in, in education, despite the fact that the population in Ireland is increasingly diverse. Um, positions normally held by pri privileged bureaucrats were actually turned over to workers with experience in different sectors. Um, evictions were banned, pawn shops, which in the time prior to the commune were a real predatory force um, where, where workers felt that they need to sell off some of their most prized possessions in order to put food on the table. Those were banned. Canteens were set up 
and and this is something that I find like especially miraculous the arts in just 72 days were made much more accessible in public um you, you know museums were opened up um days before the fall of the commune there were public concerts being held in Paris where where people from all different kinds of backgrounds were be able, were able to experience what was nor before only um accessible to the privileged classes so obviously there's just loads of positive developments in such a short period of time which i think is really inspirational and really undermines the myth that we have to wait patiently for progress to happen you know Harper, what you just described sounds amazing. I would obviously love to, to be there during that time. You know, all of those changes in just a short period of time. Um, you know, I just want to reiterate what you said about how when you think about this time back in history, you think of it being backwards when actually some of those things are so much more progressive than what we have today. Um, you know, music concerts, free concerts, um, you know, being able to pay your rent, getting rid of predatory pawn shops, all of those things are super exciting. But Paul, I want I wanted to focus in a little bit more on the the uh, type of government that was um, being run during the time. You know, now we when we think of democracy, uh, you know, we think of the current period that we're in. Um, but can you talk a little bit about what the democracy looked like uh, back then? Sure. Yeah, it was a very direct form of democracy um, based on the power and solidarity of the working class. Large sections of the bourgeoisie, the Parisian bourgeoisie, had fled the country, of course. Uh, they, were, they were terrified. And uh, those that remained in the city had to get permission from the working class for absolutely anything, you know, any deliveries, anything like that. So production and services were all continuing to be run by the workers who worked in them, and everything worked. The gas and water supply continued, the streets were cleaned, there was hardly any crime and so on. Very similar situation what to, to what you got in Spain, particularly in Barcelona during the Spanish Civil War, where the workers are in control, there's a sense of, of solidarity, of, of responsibility to, uh, to others. Uh, but that didn't mean that the the French working class had turned their back on voting and on elections. The officials were elected by and from the workers that they worked with, as Harper was saying, and that was as long as they acted in the interests of the working class. If they didn't, then they would be recalled and uh, 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 replaced. There were also limits on, on what you could earn, and uh, this was to guarantee that the representative stayed in touch because they shared the conditions with the working class. They wouldn't become a separate corrupt bureaucracy on the backs of the workers. This is so interesting to hear. And I think I, I want to kind of go into another feature that I think we see a lot in those kind of things. So every time we see any mass struggle, it's almost always that working class, where working class people and oppressed people rise up, we almost always see kind of women at the forefront of it. We, we saw it in Russia in 1917, when tens of thousands of women took to the streets, uh, sparking the February Revolution, that was what led to the October, the famous October Revolution. And we don't have to go that far back in time. We can also see it now happening in Myanmar, where women and working class women in particular are on the front lines of this struggle. 
So I was wondering, is this the case for the Paris Commune as well? Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the role that women played there, Harper? Yeah, I'm glad you asked that question, Yara, because for me, it's one of the most inspirational parts of the, that I, um, for me, about learning about the Paris Commune, you know, I think working class women, working class people of color have often been like relegated to the sidelines of history. Um, it's almost as, as if because they were the most oppressed and exploited, they didn't have a role to play when actually it's precisely because of that that they had played such a central role, you know. Um, yeah, women in the Paris Commune did play a central role exactly for that reason. Um, even though actually in the French left at that time period, there were a lot of, uh, you know, <laughs> um, different ideas. For instance, uh, Joseph Proudhon was a French anarchist at the time who had a, a significant impact on the influence on the French international, the, uh, the French section of the first international. Um, and, and he actually theorized the women's weakness, women's stupidity, and women's immorality, you know. Um, and even though socialists that actually ended up becoming leading communards, male socialists that ended up becoming leading communards, you know, fought, fought against this, it did have a certain impact on, on French politics, left-wing politics at the time. Um, but kind of because some of these ideas were out there, even prior to the commune, women revolutionaries and women socialists were actually um, organizing, prioritizing things like girls' education, the education of working class girls, which made a huge impact and laid the groundwork for some of the progressive reforms in terms of uh, the separation of church and state and the hiring of women secular teachers um, under the commune. Um, and also women's involvement in political clubs throughout the 1860s, but leading into the commune, again, was it super important. In those clubs, women fought for the right to work, they fought for equal wages, they fought for the necessity of divorce, and often pointed to the role of the church and the state in particular about being their oppressors, you know. The union, I should just say, the Union of Women for Defense of Paris um, was formed in response to the French government declaring war on Paris. It, it played a huge role, arguably one of the most important organizations within the Paris Commune. Um, it was born from some of the political clubs or some of the conversations happening in the political clubs that women were involved in prior to the Commune and during. Um, it provided caregiving facilities for the ch for children and the elderly. It recruited nurses, especially in the context of um, battle. Um, but it was also political. It was actually the first French women's organization to connect gender discrimination um, as a tool used by the ruling class to foment power. Um, and a lot of the women revolutionaries, including people like Elizabeth Dmitriev, who um, was one of the first signatories to the, the first international in Russia, um, and was a, a, a prime organizer in, in the Paris Commune, was in constant communication with Marx. So there was a, a very conscious organization of women during the Paris Commune, which played a big role. I love hearing those stories, Harper, of inspirational women, you know, fighting to make sure that, uh, you know, liberation of the working class also includes the most oppressed. And, you know, uh, being being a woman myself, I really appreciate some of those things. But, it, you know, we can't just talk about the great that happened during this time. We also have to look back at some of the mistakes that were made, many times fatal mistakes. Um, you know, the period that they were in, they didn't have the lessons that we now have today. And so, you know, we have the luxury of looking back at history and learning so we don't make those same mistakes. Um, but Harper, if you were able to go back in time to the Paris Commune, what would you tell them? What are some of the things that you would try to convince them not to do? Yeah, thanks, Toya. It's a great question again. Um, 
obviously it was inevitable and understandable that mistakes were made because the, the communards, the, the leading members of the Paris Commune, didn't have a lot of the history that we now have to understand certain dynamics that were taking place, you know. But I think the biggest, the biggest mistake made by um, leading members of the Paris Commune was the underestimation of the hostility of the French state, of the bourgeois state. Um, initially, they tried a more conciliatory approach towards the, 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 the French state headed by Adolf Thiers um, and, you know, tried to sort of make amends there, have some sort of friendly relationship. Um, but obviously the French state was never going to stand for the existence of a, of a city run by the working class and the potential that had to spark other revolutions, you know, and really challenge its power in a widespread way. So actually, um, when the commune was first formed, the, the French state was still reeling. It was still kind of on the back foot from, from the Franco-Prussian war that Paul spoke about. So actually they had a real opportunity that if they had marched on Versailles, which is where the French government was set up at the time, if they had marched on Versailles initially, um, when there was kind of the moment that that could have made a big difference. If they had, for instance, um, taken the Bank of France into their control, which had loads of, of resources and, and <laughs> from the, uh, the, the ruling class of France, then that could have made a big difference, right? If they had... Um, more actively from the very beginning tried to to um, make connections with uh, the rural poor of France or, or or the poor of France and working class of France and other cities or the working class of adjoining nations that could have cut across some of the isolation of Paris, which was a big factor in its downfall. Um, so actually, it's based on that, that uh, one of the only amend the only amendment um, to the Communist Manifesto was added by uh, Marx and Engels, you know, and it was basically this idea that the working class actually in a revolution it has to fully seize state power initially. Um, and that en route, that can be, has to happen en route to future decentralization as the need for a state kind of withers away, which was further theorized by, by Lenin and state and revolution. But that was something that definitely had to take place. Yeah, I think, that, I think this is a really important part uh, and I think one of probably the main lessons for socialists. Um, so I want to kind of get into this a little bit more because we keep talking about state repression and kind of the approach that the French state had towards the Paris Commune. And also the, for many reasons, that was the main kind of trigger for the downfall of the Paris Commune as well. So uh, I think it's really interesting to learn from these kind of grim lessons that the Paris Commune teaches us about how far the ruling class will, is actually prepared to go when there's an actual threat of the working class kind of seizing control. Um, and because all they want to do is defend their system, defend their profits. So I think this is always a good indicator as well to how threatened they feel and kind of like what, how big the threat is for them losing control. So I think when we look at the Paris Commune and you know, the, the, the high levels of state repression that we saw, it, it just shows what the potential of the Paris Commune ha could have had if those lessons that we have now were clearer and taken into account. So what can you tell us a little bit about what this counter-revolution looked like, actually, Paul? Well, Yara, I don't think there's anything that we can say other than that it was a bloodbath. Uh, and I'm going to give you a point of comparison because we're talking history. 
Two years ago, here in Manchester, we commemorated the Peterloo Massacre of 1819, which was a movement Harper was talking earlier on about the, the working class being formed in France around about 1800, similar situation in Britain. And the first movements of the British working class were to demand the vote. And there was this Peterloo Massacre in this very city, Manchester, where the nascent working class was demonstrating. Now, estimates suggest that there were probably about 20 people killed uh, on that afternoon. And we rightly, in Britain, call that a, a massacre. But for the Paris Commune, the best estimates, which are in a way the worst estimates, are that between 17,000 and 20,000 people lost their lives. Um, it, why the huge difference? Is it that the ruling class in England are kinder than they are in France? Well, we know that's not true because we know about the history of slavery and the thousands of slaves that were killed in the, in the galleys and thrown overboard and things like that. So it's not the case that the British ruling class is any kinder. The difference is that the, the French uh, bourgeoisie saw the power that the working class would have when it would organize, saw that workers, working class rule was actually possible. That they were determined to make the working class pay the heaviest possible price. In addition to 17 or 20,000 deaths, there was between four and 5,000 people uh, transported to um, French colonies in the South Pacific. And many of them, of course, that didn't survive the journey uh, either. So, as Lenin rightly said later on, 20,000 dead. That shows you that the bourgeoisie will stop at nothing. There's another aspect to this as well, which is that, as we know, the war was fought between two rival imperialist countries. And obviously the French bourgeoisie and the German bourgeoisie hated each other. But if there was anything that they hated more than each other, that was the idea of a revolutionary working class. Bismarck, quite unprecedentedly in any kind of rules of European war, Bismarck released French prisoners of war that the Prussians had captured. He released them back to the French government so that they could attack the Parisian working class because he, of course, knew that socialism was infectious. He was already beginning to face up to the organized working class in Germany, passing uh, uh, anti-working class, uh, anti-combination measures and things like that. And he was terrified of the impact that the commune could have on, uh, on German workers or German soldiers for that matter, who might come into contact with them. So it really does show the absolute rage and fury of the bourgeoisie determined to uh, eradicate any, uh, any vestige of workers' power. All these people had to be slaughtered and anybody else who had a memory of the commune was going to be so terrified that they wouldn't speak of it again. 
This has been an excellent discussion. I love when we have these uh, episodes about history um, because there's so many lessons that we can apply. And as Harper mentioned in the beginning, we don't learn this kind of history in our in our school systems, you know. Um, so it's nice to have a discussion, uh, you know, about the working class history from the socialist perspective um, about these events. But before we get to our last question, Yara, I noticed you got some um, earrings on. Do you want to tell us what inspired you to wear those guillotine earrings today? Yeah, actually, I mean, obviously we're talking about the Paris Commune and I read in Harper's article uh, a couple of days ago, I read that even though the guillotine is kind of famously a tool against repression and against kind of like monarchy and the old regime, in the Paris Commune they actually burned down the guillotines as a symbol of the current um, regime because, and I didn't know that and I think that was really interesting because of, you know, I, I, Obviously, these earrings are not the only earrings that uh, feature the guillotine symbol today. I think a lot of people in this day and age kind of take on this symbol and use it as a symbol against against oppression, against repression, especially when we see kind of the massive inequality. And it's very, uh, you know, very common to see all of these kind of sentiments against the rich and kind of guillotining the rich. Um, so I found it really interesting that actually the guillotine during that period was used against the working class, was used against radicals. And we talked a lot about how kind of the uh, the Paris Commune went against the bourgeoisie. Because, and one of the reasons for that is that the bourgeoisie actually supported the monarchy that they guillotined just a few years, like, just a few years before. Uh, just in order not to give the working class the power. So I thought that they inspired me to wear my favorite earrings today, um, just because I thought it was a really interesting point about kind of, you know, how the bourgeoisie can look radical at times and can actually be radical at times. But when it comes, when push comes to shove, at the end of the day, they're going to always side with the monarchy, they're going to side with the aristocracy. If it if the question is between the power of the workers or the power of themselves. So if you want to check out the full article that Harper wrote, you can see it in um, the link below um, and read all about uh, this rich history. Um, so for our last question, I want to ask each of you, you know, um, we talked about how we need to learn the lessons of the past. Um, so Harper, you first, what are some of the lessons of the Paris Commune that you think um, are applicable in today's struggle? Okay, yeah, I think there are um, loads of lessons for today from the Paris Commune. Um, the first and foremost, I think, is just the actual nature uh, of the working class. Um, I think decades of bourgeois propaganda has painted the working class as backwards. I can think of uh, Hillary Clinton referring to the white working class of the United States as a, a basket of deplorables a few years ago. Um, but I mean, there's millions of examples of, of depictions in television shows and, and everything, right? But when we see what the working class was able to accomplish in Paris in 1871, well, we actually see that they're the most progressive force in society and that every progressive change, every positive change that has happened in history has happened because the working class fought back or uh, in the history of capitalism, that is. Um, and today, actually, the ruling class is much bigger and more powerful than it was in, in Paris in 1871. It's multi-gendered, it's multi-racial, um, 
it, it's more educated, you know, uh, and the Bolsheviks were working in uh, a working with a working class that was largely illiterate. Now people are reading. Um, and it's also like the working class today is also experiencing a profound crisis of capitalism. So there's also um, just real potential ahead, you know. And then I'll, the second lesson, I won't get super into it because I'm sure Paul has opinions as well. But um, it's clear that like revolutionary moments will happen. Myanmar was uh, referenced. Um, we could talk also about 10 years ago in the Middle East and North Africa, the explosions happened there. Um, Paris in 1871. But is socialism inevitable from those revolutions? I think we see no, unfortunately. Like the working class will revolt because their conditions will be so bad. But will socialism, will a better society naturally emerge? No. So it shows the potential, the, the role that the revolutionary party can play, the role uh, a party which was not there in the way that we conceive of it now in Paris in 1871. If we had a party like we, ISA is based in multiple countries and, and many, many workplaces around the world um, from people from, with people from different backgrounds who are all well versed in the history of the working class and, and Marxism, then our likelihood of actually bringing revolutionary moments to a positive conclusion that can last is much more likely. So I'll leave it there. It's really inspiring stuff, though. Thanks, Alpa. I think this is really like crucial to our understanding of the Paris Commune because I just think that there's we we kept talking throughout this episode about just how important it is to the working class movement, and I think it's important for so many reasons. And it didn't just kind of uh, prove the point that you were making about how the working class is the agent of change, which is I think one of the most basic Marxist principles. But it's also shown what the working class can actually achieve, um, uh, just like you said. So I think this is really incredible um, to kind of talk about it. And I, I completely agree with what Toya said before that, like, we're not learning this in school. So we have to kind of learn the history of our movement and the successes of our movements on our own. And that is, I mean, not on our own, because we do have an organization um, and we can educate each other, which is a huge part of what this show is all about. And I think that this this is not, you know, the first time in history that socialists are learning from history. Even Lenin, there's this like famous story about Lenin kind of dancing in the snow, being so happy that uh, the Bolshevik government outlived the number of days uh, that the Paris Commune has. So I think there's so much that we can learn. So yeah, I want to ask Paul as well, what, what, what do you think are the major lessons that uh, exist for us today in this movement? Thanks, Yara. I think undoubtedly it's around the question of the state. I mean, the state has bedeviled the, the left and socialists for generations with people, left reformers, saying, we can use the state, we can get a majority, we can pass laws, it'll be fine. And others on the ultra-left, perhaps anarchists, are saying, oh, we just smash the state, we ignore the state, forget the state. Um, and Marxists have always taken the view that you cannot lay hold of the existing capitalist state and wield it in your interest, but we have to replace it with something. Now, Lenin had wrestled with these theoretical questions during the First World War. Harper mentioned his book, State and Revolution, which he produced during that period, and it's still a classic of Marxism. Lenin knew, just as Marx knew, that we couldn't just grab the capitalist state and start to introduce socialism using it. 
But he went further and he drew on the experience of this several week long snapshot of workers' power in Paris in 1871. He drew on that and he, he developed it as a model for Soviet power once the Bolsheviks would have taken over in, in Russia. And in fact, in his April thesis, which he wrote like 104 years ago this month, he talked, and I, I quote directly from him here, he, he said, what we need is a state of which the Paris Commune was the prototype. In other words, it wasn't a capitalist state which oppressed the people through the police and the army, but a semi-state based on the armed people, based therefore on the majority of the society. The election and recall of officials, salary limits which Lenin set originally at four to one, which he regarded as a capitalist model, actually, but, but to us would seem quite egalitarian. And all these features, which Harper has, has talked about as well, which they drew from the, the uh, Paris Commune, these were all central to the Bolshevik program for government. The, the other point to me, I think, and, and this is where ISA comes in, Harper touched on this as well, it is in terms of the, uh, the mistakes which the Commune made. Marx and Engels were very aware of them at the time and, and documented them, the question about not following uh, Thiers' troops to Versailles. It didn't have uh, the worked-out understanding that it wasn't a question of chasing the troops who were... I mean, there was a lot more of them, and they were better armed uh, than the, uh, the, the National Guard, uh, the workers' militia of Paris would have been. But it was a question of making a class appeal to them uh, and uh, not, not to try and defeat them in, in warfare, because that wouldn't have happened, but to win them over to their side, to the side of expanding the commune or creating communes in, in, other, in other cities, which could then have linked up as a revolutionary uh, uh, government. And Lenin knew that what was missing from the Paris Commune was exactly that clear-sighted and utterly determined Marxist leadership in the form of a revolutionary party. And Lenin knew that that was what the Bolsheviks could and must provide. And so in his uh, uh, work around the April thesis, in all his activity, in the Bolshevik party between the February Revolution and the October Revolution, it was precisely that, the question of the state. We get rid of the state and we create an armed people and, and based around the Soviets and the, the, the Paris workers of that stage nearly 50 years uh, previous have shown us the way. Wow, I think this is a great point to finish on because I think... It's, it's so good and important for us as socialists to learn from events like the Paris Commune. And I think it's not just us that have learned from it. We have 150 years of socialists learning from it, both in theory and in practice. So um, thank you so much, Paul and Harper. This was really interesting. I learned so much. And I think it's really good that we talk about this, this, these historical events, not just because of all the lessons that we're learning from them, but because we need to know about the history of our movement. And like we said over and over again, no one's going to teach us that if we don't do it ourselves. So thank you so much again. And it's been great. And hope to see you soon on the show. <laughs>
What a great episode. Now it's time for the shout out of the week. And this week we are featuring um, the Shama Solidarity Campaign. Now we've talked a little bit about this on our show before, but just recently the Washington State Supreme Court um, you know, upheld the recall campaign against Socialist City Council member Shama Sawant, who is a member of Socialist Alternative in the U.S. Um, this is a right-wing attack. It's it's absolutely ridiculous. Um, they're attacking her because of the work that she did in the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, and in reality, they're attacking her because of the, you know, badass fighter that she is um, and what it is that she's doing to try to fight for things like rent control and taxing big business, especially with the infamous Amazon tax. Um, and so now more than ever, um, you know, socialists across the United States and across the world have to unite to fight to defend her seat. Um, because if she loses her seat, um, of course, it will be bad for the Seattle working class. It'll be bad for the working class across the country um, because of, you know, the, the, the way that social movements can build off of each other. But also, it sets a precedent for left-wing um, elected officials, um, you know, nationally. If they're going to recall her, um, then maybe they'll continue to recall others. And so we have to really unite to defend her seat. Now, if you're in the U.S., even if you're not in Seattle, there are ways that you can help um, defend Shama's seat. Um, first, you can follow um, on social media the Shama Solidarity Campaign. Um, there's Facebook, there's Instagram. Um, so that way you can stay up to date. But also, um, you know, every worker and student in the U.S. can donate to the campaign. The right-wing attack has billionaires, um, you know, backing their campaign. Um, and so it's important that working class people uh, really put our funds together to defend her seat. And so um, if you're in the U.S., you can donate up to $1,000 to the campaign. Um, so be sure to do that if you can. You can, uh, you know, help out in the link below. Um, and, you know, congratulations to all the work that members in the U.S. are doing. Uh, we're fighting really hard to defend her seat. I want to thank everyone for watching our show today. Um, it was a great episode. Be sure to like, comment, and subscribe to our channel um, and help out my girl Yara. She doesn't know what to read, so make sure you're commenting on some book suggestions for her. And we'll see next week if she, uh, if she picked up any books. See you all next week, same time, same place. This is World to Win. Every Sunday, we broadcast with speakers from across the globe, bringing you the latest news and analysis on the fast-moving global events from a socialist perspective. Subscribe to the International Socialist Alternatives YouTube page and click the bell to get notified when we go live for a new episode. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Instagram because there's a lot to do and we have a world to win. When they fight! When they fight! When they fight! Solidarity!